if I share a bit of a personal story? <clears throat> I've mentioned before a few times how I basically bowed out of Deep Space Nine back in um, Alamorane, Alamorane. I can't think of the name of the damn episode. Oh, yeah, move along home, move along home. I basically bowed out of the show back then and didn't really come back until season three. Now, I've already told you the episode I came back on because we've already covered it. But what's weird is I wasn't into Deep Space Nine yet. I was watching it because, I mean, it was out, sure, why not? It's Star Trek, I mean, I guess. It's, you know, it's not exactly, it's objectionable to watch. But it hadn't quite caught me, especially since I came back with that frickin' Mirror Universe episode. So I'm just like, yeah, okay, whatever. Then I saw this episode. This is the official episode, no really style, when I actually became truly hooked into Star Trek. Now, argue, I could argue that that was actually the previous episode since this is a two-parter, but you get my point. There are three major things that really caught my attention about this episode. Number one, it was... Well, actually, I guess four things. Number one, it was very heavy on continuity. Everything that's happening in this episode is stuff that had been mentioned before or highlighted before or followed through in previous events. Now, that's the fourth thing, because I didn't really know about all that at this point in time when I was first watching it. So that's why I kind of tacked that on at the end there. But number, number, the actual three things back in the day that caught my attention are, in no particular order, the size of the fleets, which I'll talk about in a second, um, the fact that this was a very tight character piece, that it really tried to go, zoom the camera in as far as it could, basically, which reminded me of a lot of my favorite elements of TNG, like, most of my favorite TNG stuff was all about them being big on character stuff, right? I mean, I like the sci-fi and I like the ships, but really, the characters are why I stay with Star Trek, and that's always been true for me. So the interplay and dynamic, basically between Garrick and Odo, was just pure gold. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. And the third thing was the fact that it was unabashed and unashamed in utterly changing the status quo. The last time I had seen Star Trek really change the status quo like this... It was the Borg. Now that really caught my attention, especially the fleet size thing. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing. In hindsight, there's something else that I don't think really quite clicked with me, and that's the fact that they showed so much of the battle. Point in fact, Iris Stephen Bear had been in charge of the show for a bit, but this was his first official stint as executive producer. And Iris Stephen Bear had a very strong belief that he had to show space battles on camera. Now, I actually agree with that and like that. The reasons they didn't do that were obvious, but remember, this is basically the, the wake of here have tons of budget, right? With the whole thing with Voyager and Deep Space Nine both going simultaneously. You know, TNG was already starting to move into the movies, etc., etc., so at this point in time, Paramount wasn't exactly threatening them. Whether or not DS9 was in threat of cancellation is still a matter of debate. <laughs> but regardless of specifics, they had the money to actually make those scenes happen. And this is also important. The technology had moved forward enough that it was easier to do. So, and I shouldn't say easier, that's actually quite the wrong word. It's more like cheaper. It was cheaper to do, so it wouldn't cost as much to do the same thing as it would have back in Season 2 of TNG, for example, or TOS, if you want to go really extreme. So they went ahead and tried to show a decent amount of the battle in this episode, and I think it was actually to good effect. They do a lot of interesting tricks throughout. Funny fact, when the, the Defiant shoots through a fighter, that shot by itself took four days to do, and I fully believe that, given the complexities of that kind of a shot. But I think it worked really well. It's not necessary. 
DS9 did not need that, but I do think that it added to it. It's, it's part of presentation, it's part of execution, it's part of the flavor of Deep Space Nine. One of the things that I've always remembered Deep Space Nine strongest for, and I find this funny because to my knowledge nobody else does this, is for the war. That it's one of the only Star Trek war stories we've ever had. And I think that while the war still could have worked, without literally showing the battles, it would not have worked anywhere near as well. So, credit to Iris Stephen Bear. And of course all the people who actually made it happen. So yeah, this is the moment I officially became hooked on Deep Space Nine. Funny fact, in hindsight, that makes perfect sense. This is an episode written by Ronald D. Moore, manned by Ira Stephen Bear, directed by David Livingston. I mean, that, that's the perfect storm of awesome right there. Of course I liked this episode. So at the beginning of the episode... Well, the beginning of the episode, Bashir's talking to O'Brien. And it's a nice way to kind of get people involved, you know, figure out what happened last episode if they happen to not notice it. But I also like how it shows that O'Brien and Bashir are friends, which is something that will continue to develop in the future. Just not the same kind of friends that he had with Garrick. It's even funnier because they could have made this a stereotypical scene with them being pissed off at each other or yelling or being like, ah, why would I talk about that? Or no, that's stupid. Instead, O'Brien's like, oh, you want a dialogue? Well, the reason I don't do eating and cooking is because you're just going to screw up one of them. You know, in other words, it's not like O'Brien is being rude. He's just not really processing because it's just kind of the way he works. And when asked about it, he's like, well, I'm sorry. I thought you wanted a bit of lunch, not a bit of conversation. And Bashir's like, yeah, I guess I just kind of wanted a bit of conversation. That's what Garrick wanted. And then they start talking about, you know, well, has there been any side of him? And O'Brien starts actually chatting with him because now he's got something he can actually talk about. It's a very natural human character characterization between the two. And that's actually one of the things I love most about the Bashir and O'Brien friendship, is it's so incredibly human. I'll gush more about that later, don't worry. So, then they see this massive fleet of Kelvins and Galors and Dederdexes all decloak to enter the wormhole. What's really weird is they decloak to enter the wormhole and then recloak once they exit the wormhole. I guess you can't stay cloaked in the wormhole. I mean, that would make sense. It's a wormhole, right? But I point that out because... I've been complaining since Season 1 about how much Starfleet has been mishandling Deep Space Nine. Basically not actually putting the time and effort, and most importantly, the resources, into actually taking care of this place as if it had any actual value. I cannot begin to tell you how many times there's been a crisis of the week that could have been solved if Starfleet had actually put personnel and ships in, 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 in range. But instead, they're idiots, and it's been driving me batty. So here it is again. <laughs> Imagine for a moment if those Cardassians and Romulans were here to take Deep Space Nine. Because I'll tell you what would happen. They would win. That is an overwhelmingly, like, no-win scenario. One Galore cruiser, one Dederdex could probably take Deep Space Nine as of right now. Now, I know that's going to change soon. But seriously. <laughs> Anyways, no, they're just pass passing on through. I also like to think that the message they sent off was sent at this point in time, which I'll talk about in a moment. Cut to Garrick and Tane. They're reminiscing about the past and all they've gone through. There's old spy vets. And then Tane mentions that Mila will have to be killed. And Garrick... Garrick is his usual Garrick-y self. I absolutely love the acting and the presentation of him because it's so obvious when he is sincere and when he is not. But it's only obvious in the extremely subtle way. In other words, you usually can't tell based on his performance... 
it would be more accurate to say you can base, tell based on his presentation of his performance, which I know sounds strange, but he manages to add that slight variance between when he's being honest and when he's not. There are very few moments where it's very overt and obvious that Garrick is being honest. So he just is like, oh, no, I'm not saying we need to kill Mila. It's just, you know, if I don't need to give you a reason to go ahead and not kill your own house housemaid and blah, blah, blah. And Garrick just kind of maneuvers his way around the situation to try and convince Tane that they don't need to kill Mila. Because Garrick likes Mila, and that's the reason. He disagrees with that. He, he, he avoids that statement. He tries to deny it. But that is why. I love this scene because for all that has happened... This really helps to showcase the difference between Tane and Garak. See, one of my favorite parts about the previous introduction of Tane, uh, I don't remember the name of the episode, but it's the one where there was the implant in Garak that was malfunctioning. Tane came across as cordial, polite, and incredibly dangerous. He was the kind of person who would maintain a modicum of what he considered polite manners while being an absolute monster. And in fact, he only starts to become actually aggravating and starts to bare his teeth, so to speak, when he finally gets to the point of just being tired of Bashir being there. Go away. On your way. You know. Now, I mentioned that because Garrick isn't like that. Garrick is certainly capable of dark and horrible things, but he's not a dark and horrible person. As I think the rest of this episode will play out, and especially the rest of the show, but even up until this point, I think I could safely say that Garrick is more of a Cisco than a Justice Lord. Now, I know not all of you read my Lorium, so I'm going to explain that really quickly, because the difference is a Cisco is someone who will do something wrong to accomplish what he believes is a right, and his sense of morality and or ethics will bother him. That person will be like, Ugh, I don't want to do this. You know, that's a Cisco. By contrast, someone who is a Justice Lord will do this horrible wrong to accomplish a greater good and not be bothered by it in the slightest. Why would they? This is the correct choice to make. In other words, the former is someone who actually has a sense of right and wrong, a sense of morality, a sense of ethics, and cares about it, and the latter doesn't, or doesn't. Take your pick. It's very clear that Tane is a complete cold fish. He has no sentimentality, no personal preference, no sense of right or wrong. All he cares about is what is accomplished. Garak isn't like that. And I really like that contrast and dynamic between the two. So then they decide we got to go at warp 6 to avoid detection. It's really fascinating how far they go to make this whole trap work. But I'll get to that in a second. So there's two scenes between Garak and Odo. And I'd like to talk about those side-by-sides. We're going to skip over the first one. We'll just go on with the rest of the episode. So we get a bit where Tane has sent a message to the Cardassian Union. Now what I like about this is they even show in the thing, you know, this is a decryption, and we find out that a similar message had been sent to the Romulan Star Empire. In both cases, it was not a broadband, you know, message to everyone in the universe. It was just specifically sent to their respective governments to prepare them for what's going on. That's sufficiently self-interested and state-sponsored that I actually rather enjoy that. Of course, the Federation gets a hold of it and is sending nine ships to help fortify Deep Space Nine. Nine ships. But, um, that's cool. I'm with that. But then something happens that doesn't quite work out. So, first of all, there's this bit where Kira and Dax both have lines that basically say, well, this is wrong, what Tane's doing. Now, that's not actually the words they say, but that is what they mean. You know, this, this, this could start a war. 
this could plunge these those countries into war with the Dominion. My first reaction to that was, so? Now, granted, I, of course, have seen the rest of the series, but even watching this back in the day, I remember thinking, you're already basically in a cold war with the Dominion now. They've already aggressively attacked you and yours repeatedly. You are effectively in a state of conflict with these people. Why does, this, why does the concept of outside, out, outright war bother you so much? In fact, i got to admit, as a personal <laughs> confession to you guys, it wasn't until my second time watching Despotine, that is to say my second time watching all the way through, so my third time overall, that I actually finally cognated that the Federation wasn't at war with the Dominion for a really long time. Like, they really held off on actually going to wartime with the Dominion for a huge period. Now, that makes sense, especially given the way that the, uh, the Federation in specific think and the way that they operate. You know, the whole treaty problem that's been a huge problem in TNG and in D-Space 9. So, I've been talking about that uh, in, in episodes you'll be seeing over the coming months when it comes to TNG. There's plenty of episodes where they're like, we have to hold true to the treaty! even in the face of reality. And Lord knows it's already come up in Deep Space Nine with the Maquis and the Cardassians. Anyways. And then, and then there's this bit where it sounds like you're saying you're hoping Tane will succeed. Yeah? Wouldn't you? Again, from a purely tactical and strategic situation, what Tane and the, and the Tal Shiar are doing is what I would call the correct choice. This is a very smart strategic move. In fact, the only thing that makes it not work is the fact that the perfect infiltrators of the other side happen to already be involved in it. <sighs> yeah. So then the guy orders... I have a giant star by this scene. The The admiral, admiral not in red shirt, decides to order... It's, it's just weird seeing an admiral not in a red shirt. Um, decides to order... Maybe that's what a science admiral looks like? Maybe that should have been Janeway. Anyways, he decides to order them, you've got to stay put, we've got to protect Bajor, I'm sending nine other ships there. Okay, that makes uh, no sense, because it would actually make a lot more sense to send a ship, especially a fast, well-equipped ship, who has a cloak, into the Gamma Quadrant as an advanced scout. Uh, right? Wouldn't that just make so much more sense that they could be there in order to be able to let you know if any Jem'Hadar ships are coming, one way or the other? Whether the enemy fleet, whether the, the Romulan Cardassian fleet succeeds or fails, having that kind of advanced information would be invaluable, especially for the kind of prep time and what kind of numbers they'd be facing, and if they'd need reinforcements and they could call for said reinforcements, blah, 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 blah. There's so many reasons that's advantageous. I mean, he is a science admiral, so maybe that's why he's stupid. I don't know. But then he flat out is like, no, no, the, it has to stay here. We have to keep the, the defiant here. Now... This, ep this whole scene pisses me off in what is otherwise an absolutely excellent episode. It's just like filler. How many times have we seen this? In fiction in general, never mind Star Trek. All right, I'm giving you this order to do something stupid. But we have to go help our, you know, we have to go do the right thing. Well, I'm giving you an order not to do the right thing. Okay, we're going to do it anyways. But remember, we might be court-martialed for this, or there might be consequences, or I might lose my badge for doing this. How many times have we seen this crap? And it doesn't add or change anything. You could have still had the same general construction of events if they had just decided to do the advanced warning thing. I'm sending the Defiant out there as a scout. Okay, so then the Defiant goes out as a scout, and then Cisco decides to, decides to bend their rules to go try and rescue Odo and Garrick while still being a scout. Then you could have the th whole thing with Eddington sabotaging them and blah, 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 right? It would have still fit, but this whole, you know, 
Don't volunteer just yet. It might mean the end of your careers. Oh, come on. Anyways. So, <clears throat> then they, they even pulled the bad transmission joke. Ah, can't hear you, Admiral. Not sure what's going on. Uh, so, I'm not even going to defend the Eddington scenes, actually. It's actually kind of ridiculous in its own right. I've sabotaged the cloak, so we have to go back. Okay, go fix the cloak. Okay. That was a waste of time. I suppose the whole reason is so that the Defiant can't show up until, you know, it's the last second rescue, but I mean, come on. So, <sighs> there's this bit I'll never forget. I'm watching this. Like I said, I just kind of come back to Deep Space Nine like three weeks prior, uh, or two weeks prior, whatever it's been at this point. And I'm sitting there with Mom, we're watching, and... They say there's no Jem'Hadar... They're giving the briefing, and there's no Jem'Hadar forces nearby, which means it'll take them seven hours to react. Mom is like, oh, well, that means it's a trap. Like, just automatically. Just automatically, right? And I turn to her, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, that sounds like a trap. I mean, you're not going to have defenses around your homeworld? It wasn't until years later that I kind of got the joke, or at least what is presumed to be the joke. Obviously, this was a trap, but if you think about it, Think about how totally undefended Earth always is in, like, almost everything. How often is Earth actually properly defended in Star Trek, despite being the homeworld and capital of the Federation? Anyways, it's just, it's just food for thought. Um, so, Eddington sabotages, and that's great, and, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to get this device to torture Odo. Lovak is uncertain about this. Um... Let's talk about Odo and Garak, because in my opinion, that's the real meat of the episode. Now, granted, the status quo change, the Dominion threat, that's all great stuff. But watching Odo and Garak, that's amazing, because Garak goes in there and is like, Oh, yes, of course you're so upset at my mid... I've pledged my devotion, and you and I have had so much personal collect connection, and you're a close personal friend, so no wonder you're so disappointed in this deep betrayal of mine. Now, Odo calls, calls him out on it immediately because Odo, Odo and Garrick both have a great, do a great job of correctly guessing what the other is really thinking and really feeling. And yet what I find funniest is it's so apparent even to us what's happening here because what Garrick is doing is justifying his actions. He feels guilty. He actually feels guilty for what he's doing. And so he's talking out logically why he's doing this. And he does it with that kind of pseudo-mocking tone. I mean, of course, it's so silly to think, why would he ever feel guilty about betraying the friend who came with him in order to help him with a personal matter that he himself bothered to get into this. Yeah. And Garrick, of course, uses... He tries coer coercion through dialogue first. He doesn't try any kind of torture or, or force or anything. He's just like, all right, listen. You know, uh, you're against the Founders, too. You're against the Dominion, too. Um, this will help maintain security in the Alpha Quadrant, blah, blah, blah. We have a common enemy. And Odo has a wonderful line. The only common enemy you and I share is an Abrantane. It's just you haven't realized it yet. And Garrick says, think about what I said. And Odo's like, funny, I was going to say the same thing to you. Because Odo is absolutely correct. Someone like Tane is the kind of person that is always dangerous. What I mean by that is you have to presume that someone of that mentality and position is always an enemy. They are never an ally and they are never safe. Because Tane will turn on you at any time as long as he has a sufficient reason to do so which can be fabricated, or can have nothing to do with you doing something wrong. In fact, towards the end of the episode, he actually flat out states that he should have Odo terminated because he's of no use. It takes Sovak, or Lovak, excuse me, and Garrick both protesting in order to allow Tane to change his mind. 
I mean, no, we know like Lovak did it, but Garak, well. I have a very strong feeling that the only reason Garak survived at the end of the episode, when you know the, the, the founder and Changeling go after him in order to rescue Odo, is because of how hard Garak tried in order to save Odo's life. I, I just get that impression, as he says, I'm a practiced observer. Anyways. So then we go to the bar where he has the unique coercion method. The torture device doesn't allow him to morph. And Odo reacts wonderfully. René Abergenois absolutely nails these scenes. Um, he, he really, really does a good job of it. And I have to give special praise as well to Andrew Robinson, because as the torture progresses, like at first Odo's just freaked out. He's like, oh my god. What will happen, you know, oh, Garrick, what will happen if you, if you can't coerce? Go to, I don't know. And Garrick's like, ah, an honest answer. Hmm. And we cut away for a bit and some other stuff happens. And then we cut back to Odo, who is more or less literally rotting. Excellent praise, by the way, to the special effects department and the makeup department for the way he looks there. But again, this scene right there, where Odo is already rotting, and it's just a two-man act between René Bergenois as Odo and Andrew Robinson as Garrick. That scene is poetry. We see Odo resisting, even to his final breath, shaking horribly, like, ah, oh, you must take so much enjoyment. This is exactly what you wanted. And it's funny, because Odo is, of course, being defiant and being, you know, obstinate and trying to spit in his torturer's face. But at the same time, what he is saying is cutting to the very heart of Garak, because what he is saying is, this is what you wanted so badly to go back to. Torturing and hurting for the job. And Garrick has to insist like three or four times, like, no, this is purely duty. I'm, I'm doing what I have to. I'm doing what I must to. I'm doing this for the sake of Cardassian. This is not personal. I do, don't derive any pleasure from this. And it's, you could just see it's bothering him more and more and more. And as Odo starts to literally dissolve over there, he breaks. Not Odo. Garrick. Garrick breaks under Odo's torture. In this moment, we see the real kind of person that Garrick really is. He rushes over and says, like, God, please, lie, lie to me. Tell me something. Tell me anything. Please, give me some kind of chance to stop this. And Odo, either out of desperation or pain, or because he sees the sincerity in Garrick's voice in his, in his face, says, I want to go home, and Garrick, practically yelling at this point, is like, yes, yeah, I will send you home, I promise, I promise, I will get you home. Funny fact, towards the end of this episode, when everything starts going to hell, the very first thing Garrick does is grabs a weapon and goes to free Odo. Do you notice that? Now, obviously, he has some loyalty to Odo, we've established this, but I like to think that at least part of why he did that is because he promised he would get him home. I get the really strong impression that someone like Garrick, when he makes an internal promise, as in a real one, in other words, he frickin' keeps it. Which, again, kind of shows the difference between him and Tane. Tane would break a promise without a hesitation or, or a second thought. But then again, Tane would never make an internal promise, as in one he intended to keep. He would only make external ones, which only matter as long as, you know, they're being useful. So, and then Odo, you know, I want to go home. And this is the moment where we find the secret about Odo, that despite everything, despite all that we've learned about the Dominion, he wants to be home with his people. He wants, despite how much he despises 
where he comes from and how much he disagrees with it, he wants to go back to the Great Link. Garak rushes over, turns off the thing, and then sits quietly, just almost shaking. And for all that, he doesn't tell Tane anything. Did you get anything out of him? No. And as we find out later in his report to Starfleet, he doesn't tell them either. He actually keeps the secret that he tore out of Odo at torture's length. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm condoning what Garak does, but we really see in this episode the kind of person Garak really is. I think I've already said that. We see, we see that he is the kind of person who... cares. I know that's such a strange way to say that. He's not good. He's not a good guy. And he's, but he, and he's certainly willing to do dark acts. But he very definitively cares. So, the episode starts winding down. Garrick bails, goes to get Odo, comes back to get Tane. Tane is so immensely detached in that moment. The one and only thing he says that I found very interesting was when he said, I always was fond of you, Garrick. It's one of my greatest weaknesses. That says so much about his mentality right there. And then, you know, they get off the... Sh Odo literally attacks him, gets them off onto the shuttle, and they try to get the hell out of Dodge. Garak, as they're about to die, apologizes to Odo. And what I find most interesting is that Odo accepts that apology. And at the end of the episode, there's this wonderful scene with, with Garak talking to Odo, and we see Odo in the mirror. Great camera work. Love David Livingston. And... Odo thanks him for not admitting his secret and asks him out for breakfast sometime. We see in these two people a surprising similarity despite everything. And we see that there's the possibility of some honest, legitimate connection between who are effectively enemies, but given the nature of both of their people and how much that has cost them to realize the true nature of their people and that... They are not like their people, but so still, so still desperately wants to be with them, to be home. I love, love the character dynamic between Garrick and Odo in this, in this episode. I really, really do. And the only final note I have here is there's this tiny line that's tossed in. I have a feeling this is more... I mean, he wrote the episode, obviously, but this just feels like Moore's fingerprints. Because there's this line saying it's like Wolf 359 all over again. This is Deep Space Nine's Wolf 359. Really. Even though the really big event wouldn't happen until the Season 4 opener, which we'll be covering soon, this was a game-changer for all of Deep Space Nine and for the entire dynamic of the Dominion War. This showed the, sh the real level of threat the Dominion were and the level of scale that they were. Remember I mentioned that ship thing. I know that sounds like a minor thing to point out, but remember, the biggest fleet we'd seen up until this point in time was 39 ships. And that fleet was huge. That was emphasized to be one of the biggest gatherings of Starfleet vessels ever. As in, in all of history. And it was the biggest gathering we'd seen up to that point in time. This now upped it another step. 150 Jem'Hadar fighters. And however many Dideridexes and Galors and Kelvins that were there getting smashed. This was a large-scale space battle. And, I'm, and I say that because it's not just the fact that it's a big battle, but it helps establish the scope of the conflict, that this is not a battle between a couple of ships over a system, or a planet, or a station, or, or a nebula. 
that this is the kind of conflict that the Dominion War would evolve into, of sectors and regions and quadrants. That this is going to be a truly galactic war, the kind of thing that, frankly, we'd never actually seen in Star Trek before. It's been implied in the history of Star Trek, it's been mentioned, but this would be our very first on-screen galactic war. And I'll be honest, that, I, that idea appealed a lot to me, to see that kind of thing in Star Trek. I'm curious as ever what you guys thought when this episode came out or upon rewatching it or of anything I've just said. This is a really good episode to rewatch. Thank you for enjoying it with me. I'll see you next time, guys.